Good morning, everyone. Um, good morning, I'm Fred Kemp. I'm President and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Uh, and I'm delighted to uh, welcome you to today's conference, Stronger with Allies, uh, the Future of Europe after Brexit. Uh, we, we released our Global Risk 2035 report last week, um, written by Matt Burroughs, formerly of the National Intelligence Council. Uh, I think it's worth reading, but I think its main three points of, of what's changed in the last four years when Matt wrote the last of these, Global Trends 2030, for the intelligence community, not for the Atlantic Council. The three things have changed give us a little bit of context for uh, today's meetings. Um, one, uh, the return of the possibility of major power conflict, which was unthinkable up until just a couple of years ago. Not that it's likely, but it's again something that one has to put on the radar, according to this report. The second is the fraying of Western democracies and societies. And we see it in different forms um, across many of our countries. And then the third is the uh, potential breakdown of the global system. All three of those sort of lie underneath many of the topics we'll be talking about today. We've gathered here at a moment of historic transition for the European Union and the continent as a whole. The vote of the British people to leave the European Union produced uh, a political earthquake, that's easy to say, uh, that will change the face of Europe, but in what way? Will change the UK, but in what way? Um, at the same time, the forces of fragmentation continue to challenge Europe at a moment of historic weakness caused by economic stagnation, <coughs> external and internal security threats, migrant and refugee flows, and sharp political divisions both within and among countries, what we refer to here as the threat within. Against this backdrop, today's conference will seek to promote the leadership and strategies required to tackle the unprecedented challenges facing the transatlantic community. Our colleagues, uh, the German Marshall Fund, uh, have been convening their annual get-together in Brussels uh, this week. And John Kerry spoke to it, uh, making a pitch to rescue the EU-US trade pact, an impassioned reaffirmation of NATO's common defense doctrine, a pep talk on how to combat nationalism and xenophobia, and he extolled the merits of Euro-Atlantic alliance, declaring the need for our unity is as great as ever. And we believe that as well. So with the wide-ranging expertise that our distinguished speakers will offer on key themes such as migration, populism, identity, growth, prosperity, security, and more, this event intends to help inform an ambitious strategy and optimistic vision for Europe after the Brexit vote. Uh, I think we really don't have any other option but to see what kind of lemonade we can make out of these lemons. Today's gathering is part of a broader Atlantic Council campaign that seeks to reinforce the importance of the transatlantic partnership and make the case for U.S. strategic engagement in and with Europe. We believe that the United States is indeed stronger with allies and that Europe is the United States' most important strategic asset and indispensable partner. Uh, this event is organized in cooperation with Slovakia's presidency of the Council of the European Union and I particularly uh, want to thank uh, 
The ambassador, where are you, Mr. Ambassador? There you are. Uh, the ambassador, uh, Peter Kemitz, uh, uh, and, um, and his team at the Slovak Embassy, one of the finest members of our diplomatic corps here, and we just so much enjoy working with you and your team. Um, our thanks also go to Ambassador David O'Sullivan and the EU delegation to the U.S. for their valuable role in so much of what we do, but also today, of course. And last but not least, we are delighted to welcome back to the Atlantic Council, Atlantic Council His, Excellency, His Excellency Miroslav Lajcik, Minister of Foreign and European Affairs of Slovakia. We were just talking outside, uh, and I said, it is a shame uh, that you came in second in the polling to be United Nations Secretary General. But number one, you should be enormously proud uh, of uh, what that says about your own leadership, what that says about your, your country's reputation in the world today. Uh, and we're frankly just a little bit relieved because I think Europe can really use your leadership right now. Uh, Minister Lajcik has dedicated his career to constructive dialogue, inclusive leadership, and active diplomacy in European and international affairs. We thank you for your fantastic cooperation, your leadership at one of the most turbulent times of EU history. In March, you were reappointed Minister of Foreign and European Affairs, holding the portfolio for the third time. From 2012-2016, Minister Lajcik also uh, served as Deputy Prime Minister of Slovakia. He brings a wealth of experience and knowledge of the inner workings of the key institutions, having served in many posts addressing the challenges and identifying opportunities through our multilateral frameworks. Just to name a couple, uh, Minister Lajcik served as the Managing Director for Europe and Central Asia of the European External Action Service, High Representative and EU Special Representative for Bosnia and Herzegovina, Sarajevo, and many others. He's also one of the most effective diplomats of Slovakia. His service dates to 1994 when he was, in, when he was appointed ambassador to Japan, becoming the youngest ever top diplomat in Slovakia and the youngest foreign ambassador in Japan. Um, we are most grateful that you could join us for this conversation, uh, the, and we hope to advance strategic games coming off the Bratislava summit and in the final months of your EU presidency. Before I hand the floor to the minister for his welcome, let me point out that this conference is on the record and you can join the conversation on Twitter with hashtag StrongerWithAllies. You're gonna see a lot of that hashtag at the Atlantic Council in the coming weeks. The other, uh, and, and at AC, at uh, the, the, the Twitter handle is at AC Future Europe. After the minister's remarks, Damon Wilson, our executive vice president of the Atlantic Council, will take to the stage to open uh, the first session. Mr. Minister, over to you. Good morning, Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, friends. Uh, thank you, Fred, for your kind introduction. It's always a pleasure to be back at the Atlantic Council, and I thank you all for coming uh, to this conference. It's always useful to speak about transatlantic relations, but it's probably more important to do so now than ever. Many major events have taken place in Europe over the last month, and not necessarily positive ones, but uh, one way or another, they will affect our partnership, and it's good that we will have the chance to talk about them this morning and uh, throughout the day. 
And of course, the venue could not have been chosen more appropriately. And I want to use this opportunity to thank the Atlantic Council for paying constant attention to, to this special bond. And uh, I really hope that uh, we will be able to produce an interesting conclusion that will help us to, to steer our steps uh, in coming weeks and months. I would like to use this opportunity to mention three points. My first point is that Europe is determined to continue together in 27. Many predicted a perfect storm for the European Union in the summer of 2016, that migration, Brexit, fiscal problem could break it. Times are obviously not easy, but Europe must and will find strength to overcome these challenges. And we fully understand how serious the situation is and how important it is to offer the right solutions. Our main focus now is in bringing the European Union closer to Europeans. We need to restore confidence and show that the Union works and makes the lives of ordinary people safer and better. Three weeks ago, at an informal EU summit in Bratislava, a strategic reflection on the future of Europe was launched. In Bratislava, the European Union leaders sent a strong message of unity while primarily tackling security, migration, economy, and communication. The roadmap adopted in Bratislava provides us with guidance towards a Europe that is strong, stable, and competitive. Europe has made another step towards finding a solution to the migration crisis, which balances its humanitarian and security dimension. We invest more into prevention and tackling the road causes. At the same time, we strive to alleviate the situation of refugees along the migration routes. Thus, we are slowly getting closer to a joint European compromise acceptable for all. Furthermore, we are making, making strides to increase internal security, driven, of course, by terrorist attacks in Belgium, France, Germany, and elsewhere. People rightly expect answers from their governments. And this has created a new momentum for enhancing cooperation among European intelligence structures, but also for a more efficient control over our external borders. European Union countries are beginning to invest more into their military or civilian military capacities. Average European defense spending has begun to rise. Half the lead nations in the reinforcement of the Baltics are Europeans. We stand by your side in Afghanistan. We have agreed in Bratislava to further tighten defense cooperation in a way, and I want to stress that, that is compatible with NATO. Because the reality is that when Brexit is finished, 80% of defense spending in NATO will come from non-EU allies. And we are aware of that. I understand that there is some concern in this city about the notion of European army. Let me assure you that the European Union focus is on projects that improve our capabilities. The Bratislava Declaration is very clear on this point. If we succeed, the Europeans will be in a position to take on a greater share of the defense burden. And I suspect no one in this room would object. This brings me to the newly adopted European Union's global strategy. It represents our shared vision how to strengthen EU's role in the world. It is to project the soft power of transformation, which is what the European Union does best. The European Union will be working closely 
with key partners in our neighborhood to support their stability and resilience. We intend to assist our partners to strengthen the rule of law, support a vibrant civil society, or fight corruption. By investing into their stability, we invest into ourselves. Yet, an overall shift in our mindsets is needed. We should move from tackling unlikely conventional conflicts into identifying what to do with confusing hybrid threats and information warfare. My second point, strength comes from unity. We have long taken for granted that the United States will see the value in its commitment to Europe. We have long considered it guaranteed, but we are no longer so sure now. Some see a bit of uncertainty as, as a good thing. The theory is that it will scare the Europeans into investing more into defense at last. I'm not convinced that it will work that way. The Europeans are invest investing more in defense already. Yet this is mainly because they see new challenges to the south and mostly to the east. And there is a clear correlation between increases in spending and how far east you live. Concerns about the US commitment may have an opposite effect. First, they could under undermine Europeans' resolve to face common challenges as some in Europe begin to wonder whether they will have to deal with the challenges without the United States. And the concerns also make it less likely that further European integration will preserve complementarity with NATO. You know that there are different visions on the future of EU defense. Most in Europe want it closely linked to NATO, but not all. So it might be hard to make the case for complementarity if our biggest and stronger ally shows less interest in the alliance. Our unity has brought many positive results. We recognize that it does not come cheap and deeply value the US investment in helping keep Europe stable and secure. And we strongly believe that it is money well spent as the richness of our trading and investment relationships attests. We can now deepen this link further with an agreement on TTIP as a natural extension of our bond in economy. However, negotiations proved to be difficult or probably more difficult than we expected. And it's clear that they won't conclude within this administration's term. We have thus not fulfilled our ambitions and should ask ourselves why and what went wrong. Yet, by sticking to hard work done so far, negotiations should continue with quality over speed. And in the end, I believe in success and benefits of it for both sides of the Atlantic. My last point is about courage to make Europe whole and free again. Our collective response to the war in Ukraine in 2014, the focus on strengthening our defense and our deterrence, is right, but also incomplete. It is right because NATO is first and foremost an Article 5 alliance. Our strength comes from the credibility of this essential commitment. But I do feel that our focus on the defense of NATO allies must not come at the expense of our partners, not for any sentimental reasons, but because it makes a strong security sense. We will not be safe with our neighborhood in trouble. Just look at the impact of the Balkan Wars of the 90s. 
or the war is that the war in Ukraine raised all along the eastern border. So as we enhance the defense of our homelands, let's also improve the resilience of countries on our borders. We have to take far more interest in their vulnerabilities. These differ, however. Somewhere the challenge is corruption, elsewhere disinformation or economic dependency. We have to use every tool to address those vulnerabilities. In some places that will be advice, elsewhere financial assistance. Where relevant, we should also maintain the prospect of NATO and EU membership. No power has proven more transformative in recent European history than the yearning to join these two great integration projects. A lot of good work has been done and a very difficult decisions taken to qualify for membership. Both the European Union and NATO do remain attractive. And this pool is part of our security and our strength. That, that is our leverage to encourage further transformation. And that's why the Slovak EU presidency has enlargement as one of its priorities to keep this agenda alive and credible. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope the European Union will come out of these hard times stronger and better once again, because we do not have any better alternative. And whatever happens across the Atlantic, I'm sure the Atlantic Council will be all over it. This conference is rightly not only about the transatlantic li link. Its subtitle alludes to a European dimension, which is almost visionary. The American public deserves to know what exactly happens in Europe and what future holds for us all, because it is essential to preserve this, that unique link also for the future generations. I thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Mr. Lychuk. Good morning, everyone. I'm Damon Wilson, Executive Vice uh, President for Programs and Strategy here at the Atlantic Council. I want to thank you, Mr. Minister. Thank you, Fred, for kicking off today's conference. And I think underlining the importance of this conversation on Europe's future at a time when the transatlantic community faces historic uncertainty. But as Fred and as the Minister alluded, this isn't just a conversation. This is a bit of a campaign of around ideas, both ideas and ideals at the Atlantic Council about how do we actually define, salvage, and defend what we care about, this community of interest and this community of values. So think of what we're doing today as not just a conversation, but how you can help contribute to this campaign in the weeks and months ahead. We've got a terrific lineup. We'll be focused today on some of the political trends driving what's happening in Europe coming up next followed by some of the economic prosperity issues that are really underlying uh, this issue. And then we'll close with some political leaders and strategists to think about what we do about this in terms of the way forward on strategy. Um, but we want to begin by understanding what's happening. We've seen a sharp rise in populist movements, obviously, on both sides of the, the Atlantic, thrust forward by issues from immigration, austerity, stagnating incomes, to mistrust in facts and institutions. Clearly, the United Kingdom's Brexit vote on June 23rd rattled the foundations of the European project, a union that's protected the European continent and the wider transatlantic community from violence and division for decades, and yet now faces serious questions about its futures. 
So as part of this work, we're doing our own bit to try to sustain the transatlantic link. I just want to mention here that we announced yesterday uh, the welcoming of Ambassador Westmacott, uh, Sir Peter, the former British ambassador to the United States, uh, former British ambassador to France, Turkey, uh, expert in Iran, will be joining the Atlantic Council family as a distinguished ambassadorial fellow. We'll hear from the ambassador today. Thank you for being with us, uh, our own contribution to trying to keep the transatlantic link strong. But beyond the, the wake-up call of Brexit, According to our researchers, there are about 45 insurgent or populist parties, depending on how you look at it, now in Europe that are gaining prominence and significance and influence. And clearly, we have a pretty distinct US uh, election season that we're going through, revealing a sense of anti-establishment sentiment and potentially an inward turn, which could hurt our longstanding partnerships. So how do you govern and how do you lead? our societies in this environment. It's clear now, I think, even more than ever, that elites, that our governments, that we have to pay close attention and understand what's happening. We have to pay attention to public opinion while shaping domestic and foreign policies. But I think what we would argue here is that this political environment is also potentially a window of opportunity. People are engaged. They're speaking out. They're acting out. And while some raising their voices back ideologies that put our alliances, our transatlantic values, the idea of open economies into question, these individuals are in some respects now more reachable. They've really entered the conversation. So let's join that conversation. It's in this context, it's crucial to hear from experts like our next briefer, Mr. Bruce Stokes, who is the Director of Global Economic Attitudes at the Pew Research Center. And we're doing this to ground our conversations that we're going to have today on political, social, economic future of our states and citizens in attitudes. With data, with polling, we can better understand developments. We can strategize effective policies and think about how you forge inclusive leadership in this context. So this, for us, is intentional. We've begun our discussions on everything we're doing on these sets of issues by beginning them on understanding what are we hearing from our electorates and what does that mean in terms of what we're, how we're going to take this forward? It doesn't mean you just follow public opinion. You often have to lead it, but we certainly need to be responsive and understand. Bruce is a longtime friend of the Atlantic Council. He currently serves as the Director of Global Attit Economic Attitudes at the Pew Research Center. He's written and, and spoken uh, widely on European and global trends, helping to equip political business leaders to face pressing issues, make decisions amid complexity. He's had affiliations with the German Marshall Fund, Chatham House, and so I want to turn it over to, to Bruce to ground us as we aim today to transform a constructive dialogue into serious action, galvanizing the leadership and strategies required to secure the future of a strong, stable, and competitive Europe that's allied to a purposefully and globally engaged, engaged United States. Bruce, over to you. Damon, thank you very much, and uh, Mr. Minister, uh, thank you for your, your uh, kind leadership of, of uh, the transatlantic community, uh, and your words were inspiring to all of us, I think, and Fred has left, but I'd like to thank Fred for being an old friend and, and leading, I think, the Atlantic Council into a new era, which has uh, really made it a major player on transatlantic uh, relations. As, as Damon said, um, we thought it would be appropriate to share with you some of the public opinion data we have taken this year in Europe uh, that touches on some of the populist issues that are driving the political debates around Brexit, but also uh, the political debates in France and Germany and other uh, European countries to try to better understand what's animating this discussion 
um, because I think for far too long, those of us who are members of the elite and have followed transatlantic relations maybe throughout our entire career have uh, felt that we knew best what was, what was worked for the Atlantic uh, Alliance um, and are having uh, to uh, understand that our populations may not share all those views, may not share all those values, and that uh, their uh, votes at the, uh, in the voting booth uh, could upset uh, the grand schemes of transatlantic elites uh, more than we might have expected. So I think it is terribly valuable to try to understand public opinion uh, because uh, uh, moving forward, the publics could, uh, through their votes, uh, set uh, both sides of the Atlantic off in different directions than we've been on for the last generation. And I do think that that um, is something we need to understand. Uh, this uh, survey data was put together by the Pew Research Center. I won't belabor that, uh, belabor who we are, but we're based in Washington, been around for about 20 years. We've been, we've been polling in Europe for the last 15 years. And basically, um, all of this material is available on the website, all of it's searchable, and all of it's free. So I commend it to you. And uh, the Atlantic Council would be happy to share with you this slide deck uh, if you ask. Uh, it's certainly um, uh, available. This survey was done in April and May of this year uh, in 10 European countries, uh, mostly phone interviews, but uh, some face-to-face. Clearly, it's the economy, stupid, as James Carville said. Uh, publics are upset about the economy, but they're also up upset about uh, the role Brussels is playing. As you can see, uh, some uh, European publics uh, see the economy improving, but for the most part, uh, uh, people are still very disgruntled about the uh, state of the economy. Uh, only in Germany, really, uh, do you have uh, a strong uh, support for the state of the economy. Even that's down a little bit. Um, uh, I would, I would uh, share with you that uh, only 29% of Americans think the autonomy is doing well in the United States. So this is, this is a transatlantic phenomenon. Uh, not surprisingly, or maybe, maybe surprisingly to you, people on the right uh, are much more concerned about the economy in some key countries such as Hungary and Poland, where we have the emergence of, of right-wing populist movements. Um, uh, in the UK, people uh, uh, who support UKIP are uh, far more uh, concerned about the economy than people on the left. Uh, we have seen a decline in support for the EU, uh, which is, comes as no surprise to many of you, I'm sure. In the wake of the uh, financial crisis, there was a dramatic drop-off in support for the EU. Uh, we began to see in 2014 and 2015 a rebound in support for the EU, which has now dropped off again. Uh, can't fully explain that, uh, except we do have some questions I think to get at that, but uh, uh, the, um, uh, the faith in the EU is headed, was headed, this spring was headed down again. Uh, we think part of this is continued disappointment with the EU's handling of the economy. As you can see, uh, in most countries, uh, a majority disapprove of how Brussels is handling the economy. Uh, in every country, at least six in ten people disapprove of the way the EU is handling the refugee crisis. So that's probably an even stronger driver of this new decline in support for the EU. Um, in the, in the run-up to Brexit, we decided not to ask people in Britain how they were going to vote, but we decided to ask people all over Europe in ten European countries, 
do you want more power to come back to your national capital as the British are about to vote to bring more power back to their national capital? And what you find is that four in 10 Europeans say they want more power brought back to their uh, national capital. So there is a base on the continent, not just in, in Britain, for uh, some kind of devolution of power back to uh, national capitals. Um, we, we may not be surprised. Mostly, this is people on the right who want this. What's interesting is it's people on the left in Sweden, the blue, who want more power to come back to Stockholm. And probably not surprisingly, it's people uh, on the left in Greece and Spain who uh, want more power back from the EU. So we should remind our, I think this reminds ourselves that the populist anti-centralist uh, sentiment in Europe is primarily a right-wing phenomenon in Europe, but it's not exclusively a right-wing phenomenon in Europe. Um, we ask people, uh, uh, do you think Brexit will be good or bad for the EU? Overwhelmingly people, this was before the vote, by the way, and overwhelmingly people said, yes, it's going to be bad for the EU. It'd be interesting to see, to ask this question now, whether they think it still is a bad thing for the EU or not. Uh, we, uh, you, you, never, you know, the timing of these things determines some of the outcome. Um, Obviously, a second issue is the handling of refugees and the broader issue of integration of Muslims into European society as Europe becomes more diverse. Uh, we ask people whether diversity made this, our country a better place to live, a worse place to live, or it really didn't matter. What is interesting here is that basically about a third of Europeans say uh, uh, diversity makes our country a worse place to live. I can tell you the comparison in the U.S. is 8% who say that diversity is a worse. We have drunk the Kool-Aid. We have accepted the fact that diversity is good for us. Doesn't mean we necessarily love immigrants, but in principle, we have uh, accepted this as a, uh, a benefit to our, our um, uh, country far more than many Europeans. Uh, notice in Greece and Italy, it's a majority of the public say diversity is bad for the country. Uh, it's people on the right who are much more likely to say that diversity is bad than people on the left, and that's in most of the countries we surveyed. And those differences, by the way, are statistically significant. They're double-digit differences. Um, we ask people periodically in Europe, how do you feel about Muslims? How do you feel about Roma? How do you feel about Jews? Uh, the um, antipathy towards Muslims is quite high in places like France, uh, Italy, uh, hasn't changed that much, uh, which is interesting. I can tell you what is, to my mind, most interesting. People have even greater antipathy towards Roma in, uh, in Europe. And, you, of course, the Roma have been in Europe for, forever. So it's, it's, an interesting, it's, a, it's an interesting sequestrant of uneasiness with the other. Um, it's people on the right who have a more negative attitude of Muslims in almost every country we surveyed. And these are huge differences. Um, one of the interesting questions, it seems to me, is why do people have antipathy towards Muslims in most of Europe? And it's basically because uh, 58, a median of 58% all over Europe say Muslims don't integrate into the society. They do not want to become part of the society. Is that, I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that's what people believe. Um, and it's people on the right, again, who are much more likely to say that Muslims do not want to integrate than people on the left. Um, we ask people about refugees because that's obviously an, an immediate issue. As you can see, 
um, uh, a median of about 40, 40, what was that, 49 percent, 45 percent say that refugees are a threat to the country. Uh, notice that Poland is the country that thinks, sees refugees as the greatest threat as the DCM at the Polish embassy here said to me, I don't know if he's, in he's here or not, but this is earlier this year, he said, we haven't taken many of them. <laughs> and, you know, the, it's what we find in the United States. The counties that have the lowest immigrant population are the counties with the highest anti-immigrant sentiment. So it is fear of the other, uh, I think, is what we're picking up here. Um, why do people uh, fear refugees? Uh, the uh, strongest concern is a fear about terrorism, but uh, trailing that is uh, fear about uh, the impact of refugees on the economy and government services. Uh, crime is really not, despite what happened in Cologne last uh, New Year's Day, it is not a, a major concern of publics when you ask them. Um, this year, for the first time, we decided to ask people in European countries questions that have been asked of Americans uh, for a number of years, uh, questions to try to get at a sense of nativism. In other words, what does it mean to be a true German? What does it mean to be a true Pole? To, again, to try to get at this sense of identity and are people feeling threatened, uh, are there, they feel that their identity is threatened in this modern era. Uh, the median across Europe in the 10 countries we surveyed Basically, 77% of people say you have to be able to speak the language to be a true German or to be a true Italian or be a true Frenchman. Um, I would suggest to you this, this is one of the limitations of survey research. What did the respondent hear? You could conceivably have said to function in this society, you have to speak the language. That may be what respondents heard. And ask yourself that question. Do you think you have to speak English to function well in the, in the United States? I can tell you Americans believe that. Americans believe you have to speak English to be a true American. Um, share the national customs and traditions. Uh, as you can see, a, uh, a plurality of people say you have to share our customs and traditions to be uh, a true German or a true Pole. Again, we don't know what the respondent was thinking when they heard the word traditions and customs. Does it mean you have to wear a dirndl? Or does it mean that we don't beat our wives, even though you beat your wife in, in a foreign culture? So again, think about how you'd answer this question. I can tell you Americans answer this question about the way the Europeans answer this question. We believe that you have to follow American traditions and customs to be a true American. You have to be born in this country. Um, uh, Thirty-three percent of uh, Europeans say you need to be born in this country, uh, uh, that it's very important. But notice it's a majority who say it's very important or somewhat important. The interesting one to me is um, only 15 percent of, of, of Europeans say you have to be Christian to be a European. I can tell you it's twice that number in the United States. Uh, half of Americans say you have to be it's very important or somewhat important to be Christian to be uh, uh, a true American. As someone who's married to a Jew, I must say, I find this a bit offensive. But it is, but that in the United States, we've asked this question, we and other people have asked this question four times, and it hasn't changed that much. So uh, we are, I would say we are equally nativist with the Europeans, although on the question of religion, we are even more nativist than uh, most Europeans. Just to go briefly, as you can see, language is overwhelmingly something people believe. It's people on the right who are more likely to say you have to speak the local language to be a true native of our country. Uh, again, 
people tend to believe you have to follow our customs and traditions. Notice the Germans and the Swedes are the least likely to uh, say that. Uh, again, it's people on the right who believe that. Uh, do you have to be born in our, in our country to be a true uh, uh, German or, or Swede? Again, the Germans and the Swedes are the least likely to say that's very important. Um, and even the least likely to say that it's very or somewhat important. Whereas the Hungarians and the Greeks overwhelmingly say it's very uh, important. Uh, do you have to be Christian? Again, it's the Greeks and the Poles who say you have to be Christian to be um, uh, considered a true Greek or a true Pole. And we did a little index to see who we thought, comparing all four of these questions, which are the most nativist cultures in Europe? As you can see, it's Hungary, Greece, Poland. Uh, and I would submit to you, these are where you have some of the most populist uh, uh, movements uh, on the left in Greece, on the right in Hungary and Poland. So these things tend to come together. Um, a final advertisement, we will in mid-November uh, be releasing a survey where we look at what it is overall what people who favor right-wing populist parties believe in Europe and hopefully we'll be able to say how much of what they believe is shared by people in centrist parties and left-wing parties to try to get a sense of what is the potential size of the vote of right-wing populist parties in Europe. But stay tuned on that. Thank you. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bruce. Now that we've somehow probably offended almost every uh, nationality in some yeah, capacity yeah. in this conversation, um, to keep us on track, I just want to see if I can take one comment, one question uh, for Bruce on these slides, and then they will be available uh, from our, our team, and Bruce will be available uh, to speak to you as well, of course, uh, throughout the course of the day. So let me take a question from this gentleman here, and then we'll move into our next conversation, please. Yeah, Chris Bladowski from Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation. I'll put away my hat as an economist and, and a transatlanticist and put my hat as a Pole, being born in Poland. So I take all your comments on Poland uh, straight in. Uh, but at the same time, one of your first slides showed that Poles are the most Euro-enthusiastic. How do you square the Euro-enthusiasm of Poles with being, Poles being the most nativist? Uh, you would probably better place it, Chris, to answer that question than I would. I think it's because uh, the uh, being a member of the European Union has been very, very good for the Polish economy. Uh, until recently, you know, Poland has was one of the strongest uh, economic growth records in in, in Europe. And um, what's interesting, I can tell you about uh, our analysis to date of uh, the views by political party in in Poland is you don't get much differentiation between supporters of the current government, which is arguably more populist and maybe right, you could argue more right wing, and, and for supporters of, of the outgoing party, the party that, that was in power, which means I think that this, we're reflecting a more of a nativist view of polls in general that has less to do with political leanings and ideology. Um, but why it is that they could be both enthusiastic about the EU and terribly nativist. I, I, I can't answer that question. Bruce, thank you so yeah. much. One of the things I enjoy doing with Pew is that they give you the numbers as they are. They, t they just tell you what the story comes from that. 
um, and leave it to others to figure out what you do about it. And so I want to make that transition. I want to thank Bruce very much for that presentation, uh, for that data. I encourage you all to follow up on that information and use that to set the scene to move into our conversation. Let me invite Laura Mondeville, who will be moderating this, as well as the, her panelists uh, that will join her in this conversation. Laura will go ahead and introduce uh, the discussion as well as her colleagues on stage. Thank you so much.